Welcome, friends, to the Earl Dex Pokemon Podcast, a podcast that asks, if this Pokemon were real, where might I find it in the real world? What would its moveset and ability be in the wild? Does its data even make sense? I am your host, Geo, and in answering these questions, we'll be discussing the real-life plants, animals, myths, legends, people, things, and even foods that inspired the Pokemon we know and love. It should be noted that we will be using data coming from the core series of games almost exclusively. For our fifth episode, we'll be covering our first set of prehistoric Pokemon on the podcast, numbers 464 and 465, Tirtuga and Caracasta. Tirtuga and Caracasta may not be household names, even among the Pokemon fanbase, but Tortuga's design can theoretically be traced back to 1997, as Ken Sugimori and the people at Game Freak were gearing up for the second installment of the Pokemon franchise. Ken Sugimori was the featured cover artist for Volume 14 of the bi-monthly game review magazine by Microdesign Publishing. Although Sugimori makes it clear in his response to the very first question that the three creatures on the cover are not Pokemon, one of them is a very clearly fully designed Tyranitar, another looks like a cross between Clefairy and Hitmontop, and the third at the back, and partially obscured by Tyranitar, bears a pretty close resemblance to Tortuga. In that same interview, when asked about what sparks his inspiration for creature design, Sugimori said, loosely translated, quote, An unflinching re-examination of my own past designs, no matter how much I feel like yelling, Whoa, this is bad. It starts with intense regret. End quote. With that in mind, it's certainly possible, maybe even likely, that this awkward turtle on the cover of a 1997 magazine went through several more revisions before becoming Tortuga in Generation 5's Pokemon Black and White 13 years later. How appropriate that a Pokemon only obtainable through fossil resurrection was itself created through recycling an old idea. And with that bit of preamble out of the way, let's go ahead and jump right into our amalgamated dex entries. Tirtuga, the proto-turtle Pokemon. About 100 million years ago, these Pokemon swam in the oceans and warm seas as the ancestor of most turtle Pokemon today. It is thought they went on land to find prey. Based on studies of its skeletal structure, it was thought that this Pokemon could dive to depths beyond half a mile for prey as well. These theories were confirmed when it was restored from a fossil. Tortuga's dex entries are a wonderful example of the kinds of things I love about core game Pokedex entries. A lot of very specific information, with a fairly dubious amount of plausibility. But while 100 million years ago sounds like a huge made-up round number, it actually stands up to scrutiny. 100 million years ago was the Mesozoic Era, also known as the Age of Reptiles when dinosaurs roamed the Earth. <laughs> More specifically, 100 million years ago puts us squarely in the middle of the Cretaceous period, when the oldest known soft-shelled turtles and sea turtles appear in the fossil record. Whether or not those early turtles could be considered the ancestors for all turtles is a little murkier and likely to cause heated debate among paleontologists, but we'll take the dex entry at its word and say that in the Pokemon universe, Tortuga is certainly the ancestor of most turtle Pokemon. That means we can assume Tortuga is the ancestor of Squirtle, the tiny turtle Pokemon, Wartortle, the turtle Pokemon, and Turtonator, the blast turtle Pokemon. 
While technically called a shellfish Pokemon, we have to assume Blastoise gets included in that group, since it is the evolution of Squirtle and Wartortle. That just leaves Torkoal, the Turtwig line, and the Choodle line, who are all very clearly modeled on turtles or tortoises with dubious lineages. The other major tidbit of oddly specific information is that specifically based on studies of its skeletal structure, Tortuga was thought to be able to dive half a mile below the surface for prey, a claim later confirmed when Tortuga was resurrected via fossil magic. I couldn't find anything that would suggest it is specifically the skeletal structure of a sea turtle that determines how deep it can dive, and the turtle biology lesson it would take to explain why the way a turtle breathes seems much more important to its ability to dive would be far too dense for this program. So, for what it's worth, it seems Tortuga is actually a bit less impressive than real-world turtles in the diving arena. Half a mile doesn't sound like much to a guy like me who runs two to three miles daily. I too am extraordinarily humble. But when you're talking about going beneath the water, it can make an almost literal world of difference. Half a mile is roughly 800 meters, and at that depth called the mesopelagic zone. The sun is starting to have a hard time getting through the water. Pretty impressive that Tortuga can go down that far, but the real-world leatherback turtle has it beat by about 400 meters, another quarter of a mile deeper than Tortuga can dive, and into the bathypelagic zone, which is so deep, the sunlight can't reach there at all. Of course, that's pushing the limits of what the sea turtle can do. Most of the time, there's no reason for them to dive deeper than 150 meters, barely half a football field below the surface. At 2 foot 4.7 meters long and 36.4 pounds 16.5 kilograms, Tortuga is on the smaller side, but still fits alongside the smaller hard-shelled sea turtles found in the real world. Tortuga, and by extension Caracosta, is also wildly disproportionately male, with 87.5% of all restored Tortuga being male and only 12.5% of resurrected Tortuga being female. A possible explanation for this extreme ratio is that sea turtles in the real world have temperature-dependent sex determination, meaning that the developing baby sea turtle's sex will depend on the temperature it's exposed to in the eggs. Warmer temperatures produce females, and cooler temperatures produce males. The problem with this little theory is that when Tortuga was alive 100 million years ago, they were in the Cretaceous period, one of the warmest periods in the history of the Earth. So really, the ratio should be the other way around. Still, let's just say that Tortuga is different, and that in Pokémon with temperature-dependent sex determination, warmer temperatures will produce males, and cooler temperatures will produce females. Yep, that stands up to scrutiny. Caracosta, the proto-turtle Pokémon. They can live both in the ocean and on land though it drags land-based prey into the water to finish it off. A slap from one of its developed front appendages is enough to open a hole in the bottom of a tanker. Incredible jaw strength enables them to chew up steel beams and rocks along with their prey. It is said it constructed its sturdy shell by crunching and swallowing the hard shells or bones of its prey, such as Amistar and Ammonite. While sea turtles are well known for coming onto beaches to lay their eggs, they don't often come up on land for food, so it's odd that both Tortuga and Caracosta make that distinction. Caracosta's dex entry goes a step further, saying that it drags land-based prey back into the water to finish it off, although in real life, turtles aren't exactly known as adept hunters, 
especially on land where they are less able to adeptly move their bodies. They're nearly all omnivorous, meaning they'll eat just about anything, with the exception of the green sea turtle, which tends to become vegetarian later in life, and leatherback sea turtles, which eat jellyfish almost exclusively. Aside from those two outliers, sea turtles certainly eat their fair share of tough-shelled marine life, including crabs, mollusks, and sponges. So it makes sense Caracosta would love to make a meal of Ammonite and Amistar, the original shellfish fossils. Caracosta further benefits from the wonderful exaggeration of Pokémon abilities that forms the basis of this podcast, in that it is said to be able to slap a hole in the bottom of a tanker and chew through steel beams. I didn't even know where to begin with this one, so I started at the top, and I'm glad I did. The Tyrannosaurus Rex had perhaps the strongest bite of any creature to ever live, with a bite force of 12,000 psi, or pounds per square inch. For context, the human bite force is a measly 70 psi. Despite the huge gulf in bite power between humans and the dreaded T-Rex, in a Maddie Stone article interviewing, among others, paleontologist Gregory Erickson of Florida State University, published by Gizmodo in 2017, Stone noted that while T-Rex could certainly do some damage, Erickson wasn't sure the teeth could survive biting into metal. If even one of the biggest biters to have ever walked the earth can't do it, Caracosta seems unlikely to be able to do so either. Still, sea turtles have a very respectable bite force of 500 psi, somewhere between big dogs and sharks. The idea that an offhand slap from Caracosta could blow a hole in a tanker is similarly laughable, and frankly, approaches superhero levels of suspension of disbelief. Still, let's see what we can find out. An article by Cecil Adams, published by Connect Savannah in 2010, noted that most studies have shown Olympic boxers, elite-level fighters, and other martial artists tend to top out at nearly 1,500 pounds of force with a single punch. That certainly sounds impressive, but assuming the fist is roughly average in size, that's a punch force of merely 375 psi, roughly equivalent to a dog's bite. And if the T-Rex's 12,000 psi bite was barely enough to maybe damage a steel cage, Caracosta would need Superman-level strength to do so much damage in a single blow. The last bit of information here is that it apparently eats hard-shelled creatures, steel beams, and rocks to gain the power for its own shell. That is a very poor way of going about getting healthy. Different sea turtles have different diets, as we mentioned earlier, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is that it gets the right nutrition. Frankly, shell rot and parasites are much greater dangers to the health of their shells than their diet. Standing upright at 3 foot 11, 1.2 meters, and weighing in at 178.6 pounds, 81 kilograms, Caracosta is almost exactly half the size of a modern leatherback sea turtle in both length and mass, although I don't believe a leatherback could ever be made to stand upright. Still, with those dimensions, it certainly is a tough little tank of a Pokemon. Okay, we've talked a lot about sea turtles broadly so far, but now it's time to drill down and figure out what, if any, specific kind of sea turtle Tortuga and Caracosta most closely resemble. We've mentioned the leatherback sea turtle a few times already, but as that is an extant species, meaning it's still alive today, we may want to go back to the Cretaceous period to find our Tortuga Caracosta analog. As the leatherback sea turtle most closely resembles our Mons in the present, 
we'll take a look at the taxonomic clad it belongs to for some help. Apologies for the inevitable mispronunciation, but the Pancholonioidea clad of marine turtles presents us with the Protostigidae family of marine turtles where we find our two likeliest candidates, Archelon and Protostega gigas, the largest and second largest sea turtles to have ever lived. Both creatures were native to the western interior seaway, an inland sea that split North America into two separate landmasses, and whose seafloor was estimated to be no more than 600 feet 180 meters below the surface. So Tortuga and Caracosta wouldn't have had the opportunity to explore their full diving ability until being restored in the modern age. The similarities continue in terms of their diet. Archelon jaws were adapted for crushing large mollusks, crustaceans, and bivalves, not unlike Ammonite and Amistar, with Eutrephoceros shells frequently found near them, suggesting they were a likely food source. Protostega gigas similarly had a unique skull structure suitable for crushing hard-shelled crustaceans. So, where do these two differ? Potentially, in their ability to swim. While both were absolute giants, and therefore relatively slow-moving, Archelon seems to have had weaker arms and was less able to frequent the open ocean. By contrast, Protostega gigas had a reduced ossification of the shell, along with other modified bones that may have allowed greater movement in the limbs. Given that Caracosta in particular is well noted for its apparent ability to slap a hole in an ocean tanker, we'll have to give Protostega gigas the edge. We mentioned earlier that Protostega gigas was native to the western interior seaway. Well, if any of you listeners went straight to a map or globe to find it, I'm afraid you're out of luck, and at least 66 million years too late. From 66 million years ago to 100 million years ago, the Western Interior Seaway was a huge inland sea that actually separated the two landmasses that today form North America. Those landmasses were pretty akin to giant islands, and are usually called Laramidia to the west and Appalachia to the east. If Appalachia sounds familiar to Americans on the eastern seaboard, it's partly because, at its largest, the Western Interior Seaway stretched from the present-day Rocky Mountains to the present-day Appalachian Mountains. That means a large majority of the landmass between those two mountain ranges were once underwater. With that in mind, it becomes a bit less surprising that Protostega gigas fossils were found so very far from the sea, deep inland, in the Smoky Hill Chalk Formation of western Kansas. In fact, northwest Kansas and southeast Nebraska are a veritable hotbed of marine reptile fossils, with plesiosaurs, prehistoric fish, and even pterosaurs all being found in the region. Given that the western interior seaway essentially bifurcated the full length of North America, it seems a reasonable assumption that Protostega gigas, and by extension, Tertuga and Caracosta, might be found anywhere between the two North American mountain ranges, but as these Pokemon are extinct and only exist in the Pokemon world as reanimated fossils, we have to go with where one would find the fossils, not where one would have found the living animal millions of years ago. So we can go ahead and call it now. If you wanted a Tertuga or Caracosta in real life, you're going to have to take a trip to Kansas. Now that we've built up a little knowledge base under us, let's go ahead and see what Tortuga and Caracosta's moveset and abilities might have been in the wild, and therefore, what kind of prehistoric moves they might come swinging with after restoring them from a cover fossil.
Tirtuga and Karakosta present us with an immediately tough choice when it comes to choosing an ability. Our options are Solid Rock, Sturdy, and the hidden ability, Swift Swim. Given that the only praise for Protostega Gygus' swimming was that it was probably a better swimmer than Archelon, which itself probably didn't move very fast, we can pretty easily let Swift Swim remain hidden, and instead turn our attention to Solid Rock and Sturdy. Solid Rock reduces the damage taken from super effective hits by 25%, while Sturdy prevents Tertuga or Karakosta from being knocked out with a single hit. Both of these jibe well with Tertuga and especially Karakosta's notably tough shell. A proper Karakosta should be a defensive fortress, almost dismaying opponents with how well it can take a hit. While Sturdy certainly ensures that Karakosta will never be defeated with a single blow, a two-hit KO isn't all that much more impressive. By contrast, I can just see a dismayed prehistoric grass type firing off rounds of bullet seed or razor leaf at Karakosta's tough shell, wondering how it is Karakosta is surviving what should be a death blow. Alright, if we're being real, the right Pokemon can crack Karakosta pretty easily, as Water Rock is a terrible defensive typing, which is why I'm giving the edge to Solid Rock. Being able to negate some of the extreme super effective damage Karakosta takes from Electric, Fighting, Ground, and especially the extremely common Grass-type moves, is too valuable to pass up, and adds to the legend of Karakosta's powerful shell. Focusing on the individuals now, let's start with the younger Tortuga. Something we haven't really touched on in this episode yet, is that sea turtles lay their eggs on land. Baby sea turtles face an infamous gauntlet when they hatch, as they must cross the beach on which they're hatched while doing their best to avoid predators. It's somewhat interesting that not only does Tortuga's dex entry not mention anything about being born on land, but it actually says that Tortuga returns to land to hunt on occasion. It seems baby Tortuga aren't quite so defensive as their real-world counterparts. And while it bears repeating that sea turtles are not magnificent land-based hunters, Tortuga apparently is, so our moveset will focus on three priorities. Helping Tortuga escape predators on land, helping Tortuga hunt, and because of the diving thing mentioned in its entry, helping Tortuga dive the depths of the ocean. Generally, newly hatched sea turtles are pretty much at the mercy of any nearby predator, but that doesn't have to be the case for Tortuga. While a real-world sea turtle's shell is pretty much useless for defense at this stage, Tortuga could theoretically already have access to a bevy of defensive moves, like Withdraw, Protect, Wide Guard, or Iron Defense. In the games, Tortuga hatch knowing Withdraw automatically, but a newly hatched Tortuga could still have any of the other moves through breeding, so they're all still on the table as far as I'm concerned. And when it comes to all-out defense, we're gonna have to go with Protect. Let's face it, if a newly hatched Tortuga takes a single hit from a predator, it is pretty much Tyrannosaurus wrecked, so we want to give priority to a move that guarantees survival for at least one turn. That leaves Protect and Wide Guard, and of these two, it's no contest. It's a mon eat mon world out there, and it's every Tortuga for itself. Wide Guard only works against attacks targeting multiple Pokemon, and prehistoric bird Pokemon and other predators seem much more likely to target a single Tortuga at a time, rather than attack the entire clutch of newly hatched eggs at once. And so, Protect gives each individual hatchling the best, albeit still very slim, chance for survival. Now that it's gotten some experience under its belt, Tortuga, in a very unsea turtle-like manner, must come back on land to hunt, but still faces the problem of moving like a turtle on land. 
So we've got to find a way to make Tortuga formidable on land. And I've found it. A one-two punch of Smackdown and Aqua Jet. Since Tortuga can't move very swiftly to catch prey on land, its strategy will be to knock its prey out of the sky, perhaps some kind of bird or insect Pokemon, and follow up with Aqua Jet to speed towards where its prey lies dazed for the knockout as quickly as possible. In this way, Tortuga doesn't have to chase or hunt or stalk very much at all. It just has to wait, be patient, and strike at exactly the right time. Finally, there's its ability to dive. Unfortunately, Tortuga can't learn dive naturally, and none of its other moves have much to do with its movement in the waters, so we'll have to do something a bit different. The dex only says that Tortuga is thought to have gone on land to find prey, so not only is this uncertain, but it may have been an occasional thing. It seems fairly possible that much like real-world sea turtles, Protostega gigas and its evolution Caracosta, it crunched on shellfish, mollusks, and other hard-shelled marine life. With that in mind, we'll round out its move pool with Crunch. So that's Protect to defend against predators, the combination of Smackdown and Aqua Jet to take down land-based prey, and Crunch to bite through hard-shelled marine life. Caracosta is naturally very similar, albeit with a few distinguishing characteristics. Not only does Caracosta hunt land-based prey, it drags that prey back to the water to finish it off. It also has to make use of its incredibly powerful front appendages, and finally, we can't forget its ability to crunch through steel beams. From that first bit of information, we know that finishing the fight in the water is part of Caracosta's battle strategy, and that can leave only one attack for the job, Brine. Brine is a fiendish little water-type attack that does double the damage when the target is below half its health. There can be no doubt in my mind that a proper Caracosta will finish off any potential prey with Brine. But how to get an opponent below half HP in the first place? The obvious answer is its apparently superhumanly powerful front appendages, but Caracosta doesn't have any moves in its move pool that makes use of them. Unless we get creative. And we're gonna get creative. Picture it, we're back in the Mesozoic era and Caracosta spots a tasty-looking Ammonite clinging to the cliff face of the rocky shore. Moving through the water below, Caracosta prepares itself, swims right under where the Ammonite is perched, and BAM! Slaps the rocky cliff face with all its might, causing a rock slide that severely damages its prey and simultaneously causes it to fall to the water below where Caracosta can finish it off with brine. Okay, it's a stretch. But if you ask me, a Rock Slide-Brine combo could work just as well for Caracosta as Smackdown Aqua Jet does for Tortuga, as they're basically the same principle. Wait, knock them down, finish them off. The third move slot has to be reserved for Crunch so that we can get through those hard-shelled victims, and our fourth move slot will go to Protect. While it's tempting to give Caracosta a move like Withdraw or Iron Defense that would more explicitly make use of its shell, Successful Caracosta have to be at least somewhat concerned with the well-being of their young. By keeping Protect, they're ensuring that their hatchlings come into the world being able to defend themselves from predators, even the slightest bit. While Tortuga and Caracosta differ in some key ways from real-life sea turtles, I think we managed to reconcile the real-world inspirations and the dex entries fairly well, if I do say so myself. Before I pat myself on the back any further with my incredibly well-developed front appendages, let's just dive right in. 
pun not necessarily intended, and see what Tertuga and Caracosta's dex entries would look like in real life. Tertuga, the proto-turtle Pokémon. The ancestor to most modern turtles, Tertuga was restored from cover fossils found in what used to be the Western Interior Seaway in Western Kansas. It is thought to have used Smackdown and Aquajet in combination to catch prey on land, and was found to be able to dive up to a half mile underwater. Caracosta, the proto-turtle Pokémon. It is thought to have spent more of its life in the water than the younger Tortuga, and employed similar hunting methods. It used its well-developed front appendages to cause rock slides to draw in prey, and had jaws strong enough to easily crunch through the hard shells of Ammonite and Amistar. Great! With that, the fifth entry of our Earl decks, as well as our exploration of the Tortuga line, and our first foray into fossil facts is finally finished. 12 down, possibly 900 more to go. I have been your host Geo, and next time on the program, we'll be traveling to the haunted forests of the Kalos region. There, we will investigate two of Generation 6's spookiest Pokemon, numbers 708 and 709, Phantom and Trevenant. See you then, or will I?